Hey, this is Brian Smith and Dr. Sagar Parikh of Leon. And today on the Leon Brainwave podcast, we have Ashley Lorenz, head of well-being at Plum Health. Ashley, thank you so much for having you on today. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. Thank you so much both for having me today. And I think we're going to be talking about some really interesting topics. So I'm excited to get into it. A little bit about me. I'm born and bred in Cape Town, South Africa. That's where I'm currently situated. I also studied here. So I have a background in psychology, specifically counseling, and that's a lot of the work that I've done. So within South African context, so we did, I've done quite a bit of work within the psychoeducator space, the underprivileged communities. And then during my studies and postgraduate, I also did some research. So that was always fantastic. And then, yeah, now I'm working as the head of well-being at Plum. So I've been with them for over a year and a half now. So really exciting. I look after all things psychology related at Plum. So that is all things that you could imagine from the type of practitioners that we have to looking at our, our trends and data as well. And so that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Thank you so much. So I'm curious, and I know Sagar is too, what was some of the research that you did? I'm curious, what was some of the research that, that you worked on when you were in university? So my subject matter that I actually looked at is quite an unknown disorder called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So it's actually related to the reproductive system within women. And it's quite a misdiagnosed condition. Often it's misdiagnosed as bipolar. So I decided to research this very unknown disorder. We looked at symptoms of that within the university sample. We looked at predictors of this disorder and we found some quite interesting things. But yeah, the whole women's health psychology is an area that we really are starting to look into, specifically in research. So yeah, I found that quite a fascinating um, project to take on. Yeah, it's because when, when you first started your training, right, I believe, I, in my opinion, I think the field of psychology in general has taken such a huge turn over the past decade and in, in the direction of more awareness for it. I know that even in every field, even in my field, I, I, I practice pain medicine, but we have a, a, a staff pain psychologist that we hired because we realized we need to address this. So how have you, have you noticed that over the past decade? just the awareness of psychology and its importance becoming more and more uh, heightened and like have, and has that been, a, I, I, this would be a weird way to ask the question. Is that a little exciting for you that we need it so bad right now? <laughs> you know what? Absolutely. I think all of us can relate to if we had to bring up these conversations with our parents, they'd probably look at us and go, what kind of witchcraft is this? So I think there's been a huge generational shift that has occurred in terms of understanding what psychology is, what well-being is. I think traditionally there was so much stigma associated with mental health and psychology because it was viewed as an illness-based field and the the early psychologists only studied pathology and then only when we got into around the 80s did we start looking at positive human functioning so i think there's also been quite a, a big shift in terms of the psychological field as a whole and only in the recent years is it becoming a a dining room table conversation. And I think maybe in the last five years, especially the younger generation have really taken on the stigma and really wanting to break the stigma around it. And you see a lot of movements around that. But I, I truly feel only since COVID has hit, has the awareness really sunk in for everyone, especially organizations, because it's the first time that everyone has collectively experienced distress 
coming from the same cause, which is not something that happens often. So mental health always used to be the other's problem. And now I think people have experienced the result of the pandemic and understood that this is now everyone's problem. So I think definitely the last two years have been pivotal for our understanding of mental well-being. It seems like we're gaining compassion, more compassion for it, which kind of really excites me. Just even coming from my field, there's mental health and suicide rates, depression, et cetera, has been such a problem in our field. And, but I'm not going to say it's overlooked, but it's definitely treated like you address it. It's a tragedy. And then, but you still, you move on and you don't really address it really. So I'm pretty happy. It's not really an ongoing conversation, right? You know, where it's not something that's consistently. Unfortunately not. It, 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 you know, it's, yeah, unfortunately not. It should should be. It's really interesting. I have a 12 year old daughter. And the amount that they talk about mental health in schools is really interesting to a point where she'll correct me on things or conversations that we have about mental health and well-being and whatnot. But to that point though, and I'm curious for both of your opinions on this, has the def- has the definition of mental health, not that it's changed, because I, I think we all had an understanding of what mental health means, but the, def- the how it's defined in the public, how has that changed? And to give you just to set this up a little bit. It was always before, at least it seemed to me in the general public, it was bipolar, right? Or it was extreme depression, or it was very clinical, clinically defined sort of ideas of mental health. But how has that changed recently since COVID? And how, how, are, how are the general population defining mental health now, especially in the workforce? Yeah, I think there will forever be when we're talking about these things uh, before and after COVID, because this has really been pivotal for so many industries, for so many fields, of course, the place of work, but psychology as well. I think the definition of mental health, I think it still depends where you are in the world. I think that's going to have a big impact of how you relate to the term mental well-being. I think if you're looking at the more Western world, so let's look at the US leading in terms of healthcare, the UK, we would see that the definitions of mental health would be more along the terms of mental well-being. And that's also the the position that Plum takes as well. We want to look after people's well-being. There tends to be a connotation with mental health that that indicates ill health. So we, so I feel that the definition is has been broadened. I think, uh, especially in the more aware countries, we can see mental health as your overall health, right? People are beginning to understand its impact on the physical body. People are beginning to understand the influence of mindfulness as well. Before it used to be about psychotherapy and medication. And now we understand going for a run and doing your meditation, reading, that all helps your mental health. So I think the, the definition has broadened from just the absence of illness to more, okay, how can I improve my mental well-being? I don't need to be sick, but I want to live a life where I communicate better, have better relationships, understand my own emotions. And I see a lot of this on social media. There's quite a positive push of like mental health challenges, mental health dialogue in general, well-being that, you know, that this is something to celebrate. This is something to embrace where a couple of years ago, the kind of mental health dialogue I saw being discussed on social media was, like you said, raising awareness for things like bipolar and depression. And now I think it's just become about well-being as a whole, which is fantastic to see. Um, And the workplaces are really focusing in on that aspect as well, because they're seeing 
that a person's overall well-being is affecting them at work. So we're really seeing organizations understanding that it's not about giving services to your percentage of employees with health disorders. No, it's actually about giving them a tool that improves their overall health as just a human being. And mental well-being is, you know, part of that ecosystem. You can't take it away from one's, from one's health. So that's my opinion on how I view and my experience of how people are viewing mental health. Of course, in, in other countries, like in South Africa, somewhat still in the UAE, there's still quite a lot of stigma attached to, to mental health. And that has more got an illness-based uh, narrative around it in those countries. Thank you for that. And Sagar, I'm curious your, your take on this, especially coming from the medical profession. My wife's a nurse. You guys are stressed out all the time, nonstop, and working yeah, for a little hours. So what is your take on that? I agree with Ashley. I think she I would think she put it so eloquently that I'm never going to be, it's like following a, like a great act. I can't do that now. But I know you hit the nail on, on the head there. So everything you said, I completely agree with um, that we were probably a decade ago, really, it, it was always looked upon as pathology, like you said, depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, this, and it was almost, it was taken and caressed by the psychologists and psychiatrists, but everyone outside of that field did not really, not that we didn't want to touch it, we just didn't know how to interface with it. But nowadays, when we talk about mental health and mental wellness, it's like you said, it's a spectrum. So it's about well-being. It's about your stress management. It's about being aware of your overwhelm. It's about being able to cope with even the little things that life throws at you. And I think it's interesting is, you know, and Brian, you can correct me if I'm wrong. We both live in the States, of course, that being stressed out was almost oddly a badge of honor, let's say a decade ago, where if you go to a party and you're talking to your buddy and say, oh man, I'm so busy at work. I'm so stressed. It was almost, you said that and you wore it. Yeah. Like almost like a little ego boost. Like, I'm, I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. That's a good thing. And I don't know where we learned that. And I think nowadays, uh, even post pandemic, all of us are, especially healthcare workers, we're looking upon that stress. I'm like, no, wait, hold on. That's not necessarily right. We should be able to manage the workload. And we want to do, we want to go above and beyond, of course, for our patients, but we also want to take care of ourselves as well, or otherwise we're going to crumble, which, which is what we see right now. So I think that heightened awareness, realizing that stress is not a badge of honor per se, it doesn't mean you're succeeding, but really the success is balancing and figuring out the coping strategies and figuring out how to manage overwhelming situations so that you maintain your own balance and your own mental well-being. That's where I think we're heading in some, and, but I think the problem is uh, people need the strategies and the tools. And right now, I think companies like Plum Health or even HubSpot or some of these other companies are a little bit ahead of the game when it comes to looking at how do you manage employees and, and manage their well-being. Because I, I got to say in the healthcare space, it's usually, oh, let's give them a free yoga class one day a month or something like something. It's something that's so uh, surface level that it really doesn't solve the problem. It, it's just, let's give them a free lunch here and there. It's, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't help us cope. It doesn't help us manage our stress and it doesn't help us manage our overwhelm. It just sort of, it puts a really shoddy bandaid on things. And so we're often left to our own devices to figure out our own ways to, to cope. And, and so we've become all aware now, like mental well-being is now not just, like you said, bipolar and depression. We realize it's a spectrum and we have to, and it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing that we do like meditation every day. Be aware of it. How do I feel? And so that's where I think it's heading and I'm excited about that. So to that point. And you referenced the, the word balance because it's important that we don't overreact to and start creating situations where all stress is bad. 
and all emotion is bad and all disruption and mental state is bad because right. ultimately, especially because we all work with right. companies, I thoroughly believe that managers are coaches and then coaches really, their job is to understand the application of stress on their people. And, and essentially, do I give stress or do I take away stress? That's what we do as managers. But when we create an environment where all stress is looked at as bad because it causes a disruption in some sort of mental state, how do we ward against that? Because quite honestly, I mean, I'm sure Plum wants to become a billion dollar company and that's going to involve stress and that's going to be, that's going to involve a disruption in the well-being of our people. And I bring this up because I see Plum's website and it says mental well-being for empowered teams. Being part of an empowered te team also means working really hard and pushing really hard to be able to accomplish professional and personal goals. So for both of you guys, and actually I'll start with you, how do we help our managers and leaders understand that stress is not a bad thing, but you just have to be able to understand that application of stress and if it's the right time or the, 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 the wrong time. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. The existential crisis that all us humans have is stress, right? Every organism that I can think of goes through stress and stress can be incredibly positive. As we know, some of the best innovations, technological advances have come out of times of huge and stress, you know, is necessary for us to be activated. So that's why we do make that distinction between use stress and de-stress. Even from a theoretical point of view, we understand that stress is necessary. When you're looking at your teams and judging what level of stress is appropriate and where things transgressing the line, that will really require you to have a fantastic relationship with your team members because you would need to be able to judge how are they experiencing things and there are also different individuals in different positions that will be able to handle stress differently the ceos of company companies they they thrive off that stressful environment they enjoy it they don't become burnt out by it but then you may have a different type of individual with a different temperament and you put them in that same situation and it would completely overwhelm them and burn them out how you need to judge the the level of stress is you need to always have that open dialogue with your team members and understand when are things becoming too much? And of course, understanding the signs and symptoms of burnout would be a really great first step in, in managing your team's stress. But the most important thing is you have the pulse on your team as much as possible. So doing weekly check-ins with them, that's something that we do in the team. I do with my team. I make a point to always have a weekly one-on-one, -on -one, even if it's just for 10 minutes and I don't have anything else to discuss, I will check in with them. How are you feeling? How is the workload? Is it manageable? Is it not manageable? engage where they're at but we again it starts with that culture of openness so you need to foster that psychological trust that if I tell my manager I am stressed they're not going to think I'm incompetent so I feel like at Plum we've done a really great job of creating the culture of guys we're here to help you we're a team so keep that open dialogue we can make a plan but if you don't talk to us we can't take workload off you or we can't shuffle things around so I think being transparent having that open communication and also setting that expectation of when things are going to be stressful I always like to prep my team for look guys the next few weeks are going to be stressful but I think just the, providing that space for feedback that your employees feel heard, I think that is key to determining their level of stress and where should I shift things around? Okay, this person, they've got a lot on their plate. This person's just finished off a project. So really taking into that into consideration from that 
but yeah, I think it's easier said than done because you first have to foster that culture of openness and then your managers need to be aware of these dynamics and how to create a psychologically safe environment. And so something that we do at Plum is managers training. So we take managers through a seven week program where the focus is actually on these principles. How do you support the well-being of your team? So you can take your old managers training and throw it out the window. This is a forward facing thinking, okay, we're in a hybrid working remote environment. How do we manage teams? How do we create that same level of connection? So I always believe it starts inside out with all of these kinds of initiatives organizations are trying to undertake. You can have something like Plum as a tick in the box um, or like many other insurances, or you can actually take it on board and really make it part of your culture. So that that would be my kind of view of stress in the workplace and how you can manage that with your teams. Yeah, and Sagar, I'll let you chime in here in a minute. I, I think what we fail to realize is a lot of time being a great manager or being a great coach is about the micro interactions of your people that you have on a daily basis and creating an environment where, and I love when you said frame what's happening over the next couple of weeks or whatever, like that is so very important because I think a lot of times we're managing people, everything is gotcha moments, right? Surprise, we're going to be stressed out for the next six months and it's ridiculous. And so yeah, to your point, great point. Sagar, do you have anything to add there? The three words that are coming to mind was compassion, communication, and counseling, just from what you were saying. And so for someone in your position, it seems, or any manager, if you can communicate and have conversations with your employees effectively and through compassion, not just here, I'm going to throw stress at your way, but being able to look at it from their perspective, look, being able to detect burnout in, in your employees. Because oftentimes, if you're an employee, you're not able to detect it yourself. You just know you're feeling sluggish. You don't realize that perhaps you're burned. And so being able to have those conversations with them coming from a place of compassion and having the skills to, not that they have to be counselors, managers have to be counselors, but having that skill set would be very helpful. How much of, I'm not going to say that all managers should be, should have a psychology degree, but how much of your training in psychology have you been pulling into this position? Because I would see how effective that would be. And I see for all the managers that I've ever worked with or, or that I know, they struggle with this. They don't know how to connect with their employees and to, to everyone, what everyone, as soon as you're born, you're stressed, right? So stress is going to happen. But if you can communicate and get on the same page, come from compassion and also be a, be a manager that has a little bit of counseling background, you could really manage your team and take it places. So do you find that your degree has helped you immensely in this, in this position? And, and how much of that do you then teach? Yeah, honestly, my psychology background has helped me in any situations that has had to do with human beings, um, specifically so managing a team, because although it's not like therapy, you've got people that you need to develop, you need to grow, you need to check in with. And absolutely, if people feel cared for, respected and seen, they will go above and beyond. And that's actually in organizational psychology, what we call um, discretionary effort. And companies are investing in organizational psychologists. How do we tap into people's discretionary effort? Do we pay them more salaries? What do we do? And all the research has shown it's that relationship that you have with your employees. And that is about how you communicate. It's, it's especially in an online working remote environment, it's sending that smiley face, sending that gift, sending a good morning message, greeting people, all of these things we take for granted, but 
it, it's that extra layer, right? So the psychology background has helped immensely and something that we're quite passionate about um, and that we've actually developed a whole vertical within Plum is the human development vertical. So it's the human development department where we specifically look at how do you develop people and their skills um, in terms of managers and the leading research from hu the human development is showing coaching as a style of leadership is where we're going toward in our managers training we also teach this ability to coach so as you say one couldn't be a counselor but definitely the understanding of psychology coaching how to have those conversations is invaluable and that's everything that we include in in the managers training so we actually start off with the basic module whereas what is mental health in the workplace? How does mental health impact us? So education is so key as well. And we found that with organizations that have a solid company culture and the managers have these skills, we see a, a massive increase in engagement of our resources in terms of therapy, courses, all of these kinds of resources get used a lot more in companies that have trust and psychological safety, which I find very interesting because you would think, okay, my company is providing me this benefit. They're never going to know I'm using it. But if you don't trust your company, you're still not going to use that individual benefit. So it actually all starts from within the company. I'm not going to want to take part in initiatives my, my company does if I don't care and if I think that they don't care about me. So you have to create this full ecosystem of aware and you can't put that responsibility on an employee. It starts with your policies, your dialogue, your upper level management. Do they believe in this or not? And yeah, so I, I echo what you said. Those three things are, are incredible important and I think we're seeing that more and more. Two points there to your website, the empowered teams thing. I think what we have to recognize is that we have to empower managers to be able to treat these things, right? And I don't mean necessarily treat. One of the things, and especially in, in we, a lot, a lot of our mutual clients are in the tech space, when you have newer managers who are getting promoted, who lack who lack pattern recognition, because a lot of what we do as managers and when we're trying to understand things like burnout and mental health and whatnot, is we're looking for signals or signs to be able to understand when we can implement or utilize best practices or heuristics to be able to mitigate some of these things with our teams. And that is through, it could be giving a day off. It could be through this micro interactions with your people. It could be running a seminar. But I feel like, in empowered teams and in companies that get this, they're empowering their managers to be able to tackle these issues head on versus just kicking up to HR all the time, which is what you've seen forever. And I know you see in hospital systems, Sagar. So what is your take on that, Sagar? Within the medical system, are you seeing either the practicing doctors or any sort of operations managers or anything like that actually tackling mental health and, and some of the issues that we have going on in the medical? I think they're trying. So there's definitely an awareness and there's definitely an intention to try and, and, and treat it. But I think there definitely needs to be a lot of help. There, a lot of help is needed. I know specifically from I think the positive uh, direction or advances that we that we have in this in that in that space come at a very like you said microtransactional level. So it's not a major initiative or project that they're releasing. It's actually the individual conversations you have with your team and your manager, and making sure everyone treating everyone like humans. So I think I love the word, and I've, I've been hearing it a lot lately. E ecosystems, right? These corporations are not machines, or these companies are not machines. They're ecosystems. 
So in an ecosystem, every aspect of that ecosystem has to be healthy for the ecosystem to flourish. And I think we all, especially in the healthcare space, understand that. I just think that there needs to, there's a lot, there's a lot of help needed. And, and I think, and I found, and, and this is not just to, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I've found speaking with psychologists actually has been the most beneficial because there's a lot, there's a lot of techniques that, that you learn in your training that really just help you with all human interaction and what not to get super philosophical about all of this, but all this whole thing is human interaction. In the end, mm -hmm. we're just interacting with each other. We're just experiencing things with each other. And yeah, we have a company and we have lives, et cetera, but really it's these interactions. And I think the awareness is there, but I think people are overwhelmed and they don't have the tool set to, to manage this properly. And so that's why companies like, like Plum Health are exciting. If they can come and disrupt it or not even disrupt, but really just lend a guiding hand for this problem. <clears throat> Great. Sorry, did you want to add anything to that, Ashley? Go ahead. Yeah, I would just echo that. A lot of companies come to us and they say, we've got these issues and we just, we don't know where to even start or how to even address them. And it's just, like you say, really comes down to providing that support, that education throughout. And that's really what we've come down to. And the managers <clears throat> within our organizations that work with us, they also have access, of course, as employees to our coaches. A lot of other kind of mental health platforms focus on intervention and perhaps somewhat treatment. We also want to focus on that development and prevention aspect as well. And so you as a manager can go and see a coach for your own development on our platform. You've got the different tiers of where you've got the prevention and the awareness, then you've got the resources for development. And then of course, if if needed to move on to see clinical psychologists, that's also there. So creating, you know, a system or a platform or type of service that can help develop, because I think a lot of platforms are focused on that intervention and less on the development. But I, I love, I'm sure you, you've you seen these images of, of people saving people at the bottom of the river. And they say, why don't we go <laughs> to the top of the river and check what's happening there instead of spending all of our resources pulling yeah. people out. And I feel that's pretty much Pl Plum's philosophy as well because we see with you know psychological disorders a lot of times compounded chronic stress can result in things like depression burnout can result in depression and anxiety so it is also about preventing these couple of symptoms which remain un unmanaged and traditionally people because healthcare has been so expensive uh, people would wait until it's chronic to go and see a therapist at $100 or $120 an hour, where now that the organization is offering the, the this resources, expert resource, people feel like I can go at any point. I can go at any point. I don't have to wait until I'm at my wit's end. So that's also something really important for us is that development and prevention aspect. And, and uh, actually, I think that's great what you said. And then just to echo it, I think, I think, like I said before, I think the awareness, we're getting a more heightened awareness to these issues now. What I want to see is the value. So I want to see people putting value in it too. And what I mean by that is you've, I'm sure you've, we all know people who are in, in so let's say in, in counseling or therapy right now. And a lot of them even say that, oh, I wish I had done this earlier before this problem happened. So it's not just, oh, I, I, I've now had this problem. Now I'm going to go seek therapy. It was almost like they wish it had started earlier, but unless you are aware of that problem, you're not putting the value or the importance to it. And so 
you know, what I hope to occur, what I hope to happen in the years to come is that any team, any group, any company um, it, it will look to the importance and the value of maintenance or of prevention, like you said, and, and see that as an important thing so that you set aside time for it. Just like this age old, anyone who's starting out meditation, they're usually trying to start out a meditation practice when their life is truly overwhelmed, they're overwhelmed and they need something, they realize. And I think only after the fact, the conversation is always, this is something that you just set aside five to 10 minutes every day and just set a practice. And then eventually it can help you along the way. Unless you realize the importance and the value of that beforehand, you're not going to put set aside five, 10 minutes. You're going to be, you think, oh no, I have so many other things to do. So I think that's where I want to see companies go now is you don't just react when, pardon my friends, shit hits the fan. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You don't just react when that happens. You, uh, you realize the importance and the value of it beforehand. And you actually set aside time for it as this is part of the work too. It's not just hitting this extrinsic target. This is also important. So setting aside time, but you have to, as a manager and as a company, you have to realize the importance and the value of it first to be able to do that. Um, to that, to that point, I don't think companies realize the cost associated with it. And the, what I think what we fail to realize is that stress and mental health, it impacts everything within the workplace. We did a ton of studies within sport about like skill acquisition under like highly fatigued athletes and highly stressed out athletes. And you see it within the workplace as well. And you talked about it, Ashley, about coaching this development model. But if your team is really stressed out, $100,000 L&D model you just rolled into the company it's going to be less impactful because all you're doing at that point is adding stress to the equation. You're taking already a stressed out team and you're saying, all right, now upskill. All right, now increase your goals. All right, you know, let's do this. All right, let's do that. And those things overall have a long-term people cost associated with it. And that's what I think companies miss, right? It's always reactionary. It's like, oh shit, my people are burnt out. Let me do something about it. Rather than this needs to be woven inside the fabric of a company to be able to maximize everything you're asking your people to be able to do. It really, it's a performance multiplier if done properly and managed while you're trying to grow, not when you're turning over 75% of your people. Question for both of you real quick. And to that point, Brian, and it's a question for both of you. Do you think right now that most companies feel or approach this as why is this my problem? So let's just say talking about an individual's ability to cope and stress. And do you think yeah. companies so right now come at that problem with that is my issue? Yeah, I, I know your question. I'm going to throw yeah. it back on you. I look at the people that we manage as our chart, as our responsibility. And in every profession in the world where you are responsible for developing and nurturing sort of people along the way, teaching and doctors, whatever else, everybody else is held accountable to that. But somehow managers and companies get to wash their hands of that. And I think that's absolutely bullshit. I have a responsibility. If I hurt my people, I should be held accountable. If a teacher makes, causes their kid to drop out, or if a doctor hurts someone in surgery, they're held accountable. But somehow companies are not, even though they cause, and sometimes cause alcoholism and drug issues and depression and anxiety and suicide and all these other things. But then they turn around and say, they should have talked to a therapist. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I must say, obviously, it's a little bit biased from our perspective because of the companies approaching us, but a lot of companies are shifting in terms of seeing it. It is an us problem, it's a we problem. And I think, fortunately, unfortunately, this has become 
because of COVID. That I really feel that has been the biggest pusher where people are wanting to get this as a tick in the box. But we see two t- different types of companies that are truly invested in the in making that rudimental change. And then you still get companies that need a little bit more convincing. But I've actually, I'm reading this really interesting book, Improving Mental Health in the Workplace. And it was actually published this year. And the therapists talk about how more and more the workplace is becoming the epicenter of mental health issues. And you know, how we used to look at it is all these people outside my organization, maybe three of them have depression and they come into the organization and we need to almost support them in a way we would with someone with disabilities, for instance. So they always saw this as this externalized issue. And nowadays we're seeing that specifically because of COVID, but just in general, COVID is bringing out all of the skeletons in the closet, uh, I think for, for companies, but they're starting to realize that actually the dynamics of the workplace, toxic workplace culture, bullying, toxic uh, productivity, all of these kinds of things are actually causing these issues for people. They're causing anxiety, stress, burnout, all of these problems. So it's no longer that that's your problem. No, you're, the nature of your work, your industry, what the dynamics are actually causing people and really adding huge amounts of pressure to individuals. So it, it, it has to be a, an organizational problem. And quite recently, there was a, a situation in South Africa So I'm I'm not too sure how it works over in the States, but in the aviation sector here in South Africa, you are not allowed to be on any kind of psychiatric medication. So if you have anxiety or depression or anything like that, or God forbid you're going through grief and you need some support, essentially, if you are found to be under the care of a psychiatric medication or seeing a psychologist, you would be put on temporary leave. So essentially, you would not be able to work. And that case would be investigated. So there is this massive stigma within the aviation sector in South Africa. And actually, a a, a close friend of mine lost her husband to suicide from within this industry, because he suffered with severe depression, and he didn't seek help, because in his words to her, if they find out I'm going to lose my license, I'm going to lose my job, I'm never going to be able to work. And unfortunately, he never seeked help, any treatment and things ended the way they did. And she said, I'm convinced that had the workplace supported, had the policy supported a normal human phenomenon, people go through tough times, he would have gone and, and, and got this help. So there are still industries out there that even their internal policies are actually inhibiting people from seeking help and creating a a stigma that if we find out one of you are seeking help, then your job is at risk. And this has literally prevented this man from seeking help. I don't know what would happen in the States, but I said to her, I'm sure there's some kind of case over here because that's just absolutely, we've unacceptable in today's society. That's how we view mental health conditions. It used to be back in the day, pilots needed, you had to have perfect prescription to fly. That's gone. You put on your pair of glasses, you can do the job. And I think also taking away someone's work when they are also in a vulnerable state, and that's often a source of gratification, of self-worth, it can literally culminate in the worst possible scenarios. And this is an extreme example of how organizations can impact individuals' mental well-being to such an extreme. Saga, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, first, that's you know, in- incredibly tragic because you, an individual that obviously needed help and felt that he couldn't come out and 
and say so. And so that's, and that's the worst case scenario. That's like the worst scenario. I'll say that with respect to if people have certain mental health diagnoses or if they have their own medication for it, I think in the States, we, there isn't really a lot of laws against having that and working. So that's the nice thing. A lot of people are suffering with, with conditions, but they're still able to work. So there's no, at least from my perspective, there's not a lot of discrimination against that, having that diagnosis and not being able to do your job and working. So in that way, it's good, I think. Um, but I will say that as from my experience and in my field, Right. There is, there is at times this need to underrepresent how you're feeling at, because you feel like, because you think it will hinder your job prospects. Yes. hundred percent. So that's why we talked about this before, Brian, about surveys. They hand out a lot of surveys to see, to get the pulse of your company or your employees. But a lot of people rely on surveys because they don't want to seem like I can't do the job or I can't, I, I can't do this because they're afraid of the consequences. And I'll, I'll, this is just a hypothetical example. In, in the healthcare field, people who are in training, residents and fellows who are in training, they obviously depend upon their host institution to get their training and their education and they want to graduate and start working. But if there's any kind of grievance in that institution, there are surveys in place so that the governing boards can note, can give those residents a voice. But I think a lot of those trainees are fearful of really utilizing that survey and expressing how they feel because what if my program gets shut down because of it? And then I lose a job. So I think what happens is, and this hypothetical speaking, I think what happens is a lot of people sugarcoat the truth just so that because they fear they're going to lose their job otherwise. And that's where the problem lies. You mentioned suicide, physician suicide. I think what the 40 for every 100,000 residents or, or physicians actually are commit suicide, 40 for every 100,000 physicians. And that's actually, that statistic is actually um, larger than general population. So this is obviously a big problem that is being underrepresented potentially or underreported potentially because everyone wants to keep their job. And it shouldn't be that way because the cost of that is, is tragic. It, incredibly, it, it's irreplaceable. And I think I've, I went on a tangent. I forgot the original question, but I think that it's true. Uh, it's, we have to figure out a better way to communicate and assess burnout situations and in a way that's, that's maybe confidential. And, there's, and that the, the participant who's writing that survey or expressing this grievance is not afraid of the concept, let's say, losing their job or losing their training program or something else or losing their paycheck because of it. Because and, and in regards to surveys, you'd be surprised how much, how many times that data is collected, but the employee never sees anything from it. There's no actionable change yeah. that is driven from it, right? Because surveys and, and subjective questionnaires and whatnot, they can be very beneficial, but less coaches or managers, whoever, whoever else, you have to give them back something in return for that data. They have to understand that there's action being taken, it is being taken place because of this. I'm going to pivot a little bit and get into some definitions of things, right? Because I feel like defining a lot of these things around mental health and whatnot is super important. And a lot of times in, in LinkedIn and everywhere else, they get uh, bastardized a little bit. But Ashley, can you define the term resilience for us and what that means to you? Sure, sure. So psychological resilience is essentially using your internal capabilities, strategies to be able to face a crisis 
um, head on with the best possible coping skills that you have. Resilience is the ability to handle that crisis and process it in an emotionally healthy and conducive way. And resilience is when you're able to face a stressor and actually return to the pre-crisis state relatively quickly. So it's about using all of your mental functions, your resources um, in order to cope with this, the stressor, but specifically not allowing that stressor to expand or take as will take as much time from your processing as if you were not as resilient. So the more resilient, the quicker you're able to overcome that crisis and come back to pre-crisis functioning. How subjective is resilience? Uh, and, and what I mean by that is resiliency, our, our capacity to be resilient can be impacted by many different things, right? Even epigenetic factors can impact how resilient someone can be. Childhood trauma, relationship with your mother, things along those lines. So I want to be careful when we talk, companies are like to build a resilient company, to be a resilient person or an employee. The bandwidth of the ranges of how resilient people could be are all over the place. So we have to be very careful as far as expectations of resiliency for people. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. As I used that example earlier of the CEO with in terms of stress levels, I think the way in which people bounce back or the way in which they face difficult situations is going to vary. People's processing of difficult situations will vary and people's level of resilience will vary. And so that spot on, it is again also about understanding, you know, what I'm asking or what is going on in reality and I'm taking this individual and I'm looking at their resilience, you know, first understanding, is it realistic for the average human being to be able to be resilient in these situations? I think that's always important because yes, you will have incredibly high functioning people that are incredibly resilient, but yeah, not all five fingers are the same on one hand. So yeah, you do absolutely have to take into consideration. And I think often people in leadership positions are quite resilient people, just generalizing, but Often what can happen then is maybe your own level of resilience or expectation you then put onto your team members. And maybe you have, for your own psychological reasons, way incredibly high expectations or incredibly high resilience. And so it's also just making sure that your expectation of resilience and what you as like a leader could achieve um, you don't necessarily impart that onto other people and expect them to function in the exact same way as you. Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I think it's interesting about resiliency and it almost being task dependent or task specific too, right? And just because I'll use sales for an example, just because you made a hundred phone calls today and you've done that for a period of 10 times in a row, doesn't mean that you have the capacity to be able to jump up to 150 calls and adapt the same way. Like your body establishes systems and processes to be able to adapt to stressors over time. But I feel like the managers are like, oh, you did this before, therefore you should be able to do this. But that's not how physiology and psychology works. There's systems that are put in place to be able to adapt to these type of things. Saga, what does, what does resiliency mean to you? Once again, Ashley, eloquence is it. You're eloquent with your definitions. I agree with everything you said. And the ability to, I guess recovery is the thing I'm thinking of. The ability to recover from a difficult situation. And, and like I said, not as eloquent as what Ashley said, but I think it's, I think it's that for me, that's what resilience is when you're uh, encountering a, a stressor that's perhaps throwing you out of imbalance, 
your ability to cope with that recover, recover from, let's say from ends and maintain your balance is from my, in my opinion, resiliency. And I agree. I think it's a very individual thing. I think it's not a one, one size fits all technique. Fortunately, everyone has their own coping strategies or their own recovery strategies to regain their, their balance. But yeah, that's, that's recovery is what comes to mind with when I think of resilience. Um, recovering your balance. So to circle back a little bit, uh, Ashley, I know you guys said Plum Health is taking like a coaching or a human development sort of approach. What are some of the big updates coming out for, for Plum Health over the next six months to a year? And what are you excited about with Plum Health and the direction you guys are traveling in? Yeah, no, I must say it's been just the year and, and and a bit that I've been with Plum. We've just seen such phenomenal growth. We focused quite initially, we were very much a B2C model. So we very much focused, you know, on the individual and providing resources for them. And then we saw that this huge need within organizations for this development and these kinds of, of resources. We've really strengthened our whole well-being team internally. So we have really fantastic experts, clinical psychologists from all over the world, organizational psychologists, coaches. And so we really are taking this focus on creating this entire ecosystem. So from the individual employee, they have a place to go where they have a variety of different services to use for wherever they lay on the spectrum, whether they're just wanting to improve their well-being. So you have things like meditations and courses and eBooks, and then people that are, are looking for development, you have coaches, of course, counselors work with us, career coaches, and then more people that are perhaps really struggling with something like anxiety, depression, we have our, our clinical psychologists. But as I mentioned, we're working very closely with the organizations. So we do a lot of training and psychoeducation for them as well. So very exciting things coming up for Plum, really diversifying and creating this entire ecosystem within an organization. So I'm really excited to learn about more about the organizational field and really integrate that into our resources. Companies have a one-stop place to go to for all of their development and well-being needs. Our partners, they get regular updates on what are some of the categories that people are coming to work on so that we can work with our teams or with our organizations to develop any kind of intervention. So if we see your employees are particularly struggling with something like anxiety, we could then consult you and understand and what we can do to help. So we work very closely one-on-one -on -one with the, the clients that we have. So it's not you sign up and we leave you. We work with the organization and everything is very bespoke. So we're really excited about that. We're going full workplace orientation. So we've got our Teams app, which is available now. So employers can have, you can have your essentially your, your well-being space in your workspace. So it's right there. You don't have to jump onto a million different platforms because I know that's sometimes tough. Our Slack app as well is coming up soon. So yeah, and we've just got plans to expand more specifically within the US and really excited to learn uh, more ab about the the world of psychology in the US and learn from all of the, the wonderful experts there. And so yeah, we, we're very excited, lots happening. But yeah, overall, we're just really growing in strength and really understanding the space. But the more and more we just see that it's absolutely needed. And I'm really happy to see how many organizations have thrived and how many positive responses we've got and how many employees we've really been able to assist with various different things. So the feedback has been phenomenal. And Honestly, just as a therapist, aside from the plum, I think it's just fantastic to see that organizations are actually taking this seriously. It's truly wonderful to fantastic. see. Fantastic. I, so, I love, okay. I love, Go ahead, I, I'm sorry, Ryan, I just, I just love the top-down approach that you guys are taking with this. And one thing I, I wanted to just, just mention was, as you mentioned, 
interfacing with employees, interfacing with managers, but you're really changing companies. Like you really are changing sort of the whole culture of a company because we talked a lot about managers during this conversation, of course, and I don't want it to seem like the onus is all all on the manager only, right? It's the company itself has to change that culture because the managers, especially everyone has a different hierarchy, but I know in in my opinion, in my uh, um, experience, the managers are also being fed certain benchmarks they have to hit. So to to say that the the onus is also on you now to make sure the mental health of your company is doing fantastic, that's a lot of pressure on the manager. So I I like the top-down approach and, and the fact that we're changing a whole company culture, not just we're giving managers tools, but it's not all on the manager. It's also really on the company to change. Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, Brian. Yeah, no problem. To sum it up for anybody who's listening, you can access Plum Health through the Leon Marketplace. Um, so that is something that you're able to offer within your team. But actually, where can um, people find out more just about you uh, and Plum Health as well? Yeah, absolutely. You can either pop on to LinkedIn, um, onto our Plum LinkedIn page. Um, all the information, all of us are on there. So more than welcome to, to follow us. And we have regular updates. We have an awesome Instagram page as well. And then of course, the plumhealth.com um, website. You can visit that website as well. And you can just reach out to our live chat. And if you've got any questions, they would be more than happy to help. And yeah, um, we've got a couple of pages with some awesome information. But if you're looking for something specific, we've got our 24 7 and customer support. So more than welcome to reach out via that channel as well. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ashley. All right. Very